snow this past week uh, revealed to me that my house, my white house, is not as white as I thought it was and probably needs to be repainted. There is an illustration in that somewhere. Before we turn to God's holy word, let's ask the Lord to bless the reading, hearing, and proclamation of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you eager to hear your word. And you promise us that your word does not return to you void, but shall accomplish that which you purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Therefore, we ask you to use your word this day to edify your church. Convict us of our sin, encourage us in Christ, strengthen us in your service. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the sake of your great name. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing this morning our look at the day of Pentecost, focusing this morning on Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So it'll be Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
And of all that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said himself, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ. Be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Speeches make up an important part of Acts, as we will see as we move through this book. In fact, in the 28 chapters of Acts, there are around 30 speeches excluding shorter statements, making up more than 25% of the narrative of this book. And there is a reason for this. For historians of this period, but really of any age, speeches are events that shape history. We can probably think of some of the great speeches that have shaped more modern history. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, JFK's inaugural address, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. And just this past week, I was reading a section of FDR's first inaugural address. And of course, who could forget his address to the nation after the bombing of Pearl Harbor? And Luke, as a historian, is no different. He devotes a great deal of space in this history that he is recording to speeches because he understands that speeches were of great importance in the formation of the early church. And what we have in this passage this morning is the inaugural sermon of the apostolic age, Peter's Pentecost sermon. This is a sermon that has indelibly shaped world history. And Luke doesn't just tell us that it happened and that many were saved. He records it for us. And even if it isn't as well known as the inaugural speeches given by some American presidents, as citizens of God's kingdom, we should be familiar with this sermon and attentive to what it says. So this morning, we want to look closely at Peter's sermon. It speaks to the focus of the early church on the person of Jesus Christ and presents us with a model not only of what we should expect of all Christian preaching, but it also provides us 
with a model for evangelism. This means as we go about our lives and are given opportunities to give witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that we have here an example of what our evangelism, even in our everyday informal moments of our lives, should look like. I want to point out four highlights in particular from Peter's sermon for us to consider this morning. So, first... We should notice that Peter's sermon is practical. It's practical. Peter begins by addressing a question that those in the crowd, at least some in the crowd, were asking. What does this mean? There are those in the crowd who are trying to make sense out of what they are seeing and hearing. And of course, there are those who are mocking the apostles, We see this in our culture today, and I will come back to this in a few moments. But there are those who are genuinely curious. How is it that they who had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost are hearing these men speaking to them in their own language about this man, Jesus? And it stirs their interest. And this presents Peter the opportunity that he's looking for. So he responds to their question by pointing them to the prophet Joel, who foretold of a coming day when the Spirit of God would be poured out on God's people. One of the signs of God's Spirit upon his people would be that they would prophesy. And Peter is telling the crowd that this is exactly what they are witnessing in the apostles speaking in tongues. What they were saying as they gave witness to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus was inspired utterance from the God of Israel. It was a fulfillment of this long-awaited and eagerly anticipated prophecy. You see, the Jewish people had understood the prophecy had ceased with the passing of the last of the writing prophets in the early post-exilic period. But they expected that with the coming of the Messianic age, there would be a special outpouring of God's Spirit in fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. So it would not only be a time when prophecy would flourish once again, but it would be a time when there would be an abiding presence of the Spirit. This is unlike anything that had previously been experienced in the days of the Old Testament when there was no promise or provision given for the Spirit abiding for any length of time with any of God's people in particular. This is why David prayed in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But this is exactly what Jesus had promised his disciples, that he would send his Spirit to dwell with them. So what Peter was saying here was that everything had changed on this day. These prophecies had been fulfilled. A new age had dawned. What the crowd was seeing and hearing was the inauguration of the Messianic age. And this was a really was the perfect passage for Peter to point the crowd to that day as they questioned what they were seeing and hearing. Not only because it is the clearest and most obvious Old Testament prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it also, in just a few verses, speaks of the beginning and the ending of this age. 
These verses begin with God speaking through his prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit. The beginning of the age is marked by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And it would be brought to its consummation by the great and glorious day of the Lord, which, as one can see in Joel, is also a horrifying day for those who were enemies of God. This messianic age, though, would be a time in which everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter wants to emphasize this point. The messianic age had begun. The coming of the final day of judgment was approaching. And so this was an opportunity to answer the crowd's question and point them to this Messiah who had come as a means by which they might call upon his name and be saved while there was still time. Before we look at what Peter says next, though, I think it's important to stop and apply what Peter has just done here at the beginning of this sermon. Hopefully, if we are living spirit-empowered lives, we will be given opportunities regularly to give witness to Jesus Christ as well. It is when your coworker turns to you in amazement and asks, why do you always seem to be filled with such joy? It's when the person in line behind you at the grocery store comments, I can't believe you were just so kind to that person who was so rude to you. It's when a longtime friend who's an unbeliever finally asks, why is going to church every Sunday so important for you? And I hope when, that, when we have those opportunities that we don't simply shrug them off in embarrassment or fear or false humility. I hope that we are able to see the gift of those moments in the moment and give faithful witness to the Lord Jesus in whom we live and move and have our being. We should be praying for these moments. And we shouldn't just pray that we are prepared for them when they come. We should seek to be prepared for them when they come. Peter shows us how. So notice here how Peter recognizes this moment in response to the curiosity of the crowd. When we see curiosity to our faith in others, it very well could be the stirring of the Holy Spirit in them, preparing them for faith in Jesus Christ. So we should seek to address these questions, this curiosity when it comes. But in our witness for Christ, we must not only be looking for these opportunities, we must seek to understand the questions and objections to Christianity before they come in order that we might respond to them in a well-thought-out manner as, or as Peter put it, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, certainly Peter and the other apostles, if they hadn't been taught by Jesus himself to connect Joel's prophecy with the spirit he had promised to send, they had done this work for themselves in preparation for the day when the spirit was poured out and the questions began to come. So we should take note of how Peter comes to this moment ready. We, need, we too need to train ourselves for these moments. Have we thought about what our response would be? 
if someone asked us about the reliability and authority of Scripture or how we respond to suffering in this world or what we say of people of other religions or who we say Jesus to be. We should be prepared to answer these questions, but we should also see how Peter quickly turns the attention of the crowd to the Scriptures and to Jesus Christ. So second, this sermon is rooted deeply in Scripture. It is rooted deeply in Scripture. In fact, half of Peter's sermon is Scripture quotation. Peter lays out the Scriptures, and then he exposits them. He explains them. So just as Peter had done with the quote from the prophet Joel, he now goes on to quote from two different psalms. The first is Psalm 16, a psalm by David and about David. But here, Peter quotes verses 8 through 11 of the psalm, which speak of not being abandoned to the grave to decay. And as Peter points out in verse 29, the patriarch David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Peter says then that David could not have been speaking of himself here, but must have been speaking as a prophet looking ahead to the Messiah who, because he would be God and not a mere man like David, would not see decay. He would die, but his body would be preserved and would be raised incorruptible. Who else is David speaking of here but Jesus? who had been raised from the dead, to which Peter and the other apostles were witnesses. So even as the Jews would have considered a crucified Christ a contradiction in terms, since surely God would not or could not come to die for his people, Peter is saying here that this was all according to God's plan as told by David. As Peter said in verses 23 and 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And this is a wonderful image that Peter is painting here for us. The Greek word for pangs is the word typically used for the pains of childbirth. As one biblical scholar puts it, it is though Peter is saying, the abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Jesus offered himself up to death as an atonement for sins, but death could not hold him. Jesus' resurrection, therefore, according to Peter, validates his life and his ministry. But Jesus was not just raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven also, where he reigns at the right hand of God and is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And this is a reality to which David also prophesied. So the next psalm Peter quotes is Psalm 110. Again, this is a psalm written by David, but speaks of one who is greater than David. The Lord said to my Lord, 
The first Lord spoken of here is the God of Israel. But who is God speaking to? Who is it that David calls my Lord? Who is said here to sit at the right hand of God until God's enemies are made his footstool? And Peter's point is to ask who else this could be other than the Messiah. A Messiah who was more than merely human. And in fact, Jesus had made the same point about Psalm 110, verse 1. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked some Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees responded, saying, The son of David. So then Jesus asked, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, Jesus continues, how is he his son? And this silenced the Pharisees. They understood what Jesus was getting at. If the Messiah were to be a mere human descendant of Jesus, a mere human being, that form of address is improper. But the Messiah was to be no mere man. He was to be more than that. He was to be the God-man, the one the Father would exalt above every being in heaven on, and on earth, giving him a name that is above every name and allowing him to sit at his right hand until he should make all of his enemies subservient. Peter had already established that Jesus was a man when he stated toward the beginning of his sermon, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Jesus was a man, born of a woman, born in the line of David. But now, after establishing that Jesus both rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, revealing him to be the Messiah, Peter declares, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus was more than a man. He was God incarnate. And God Almighty had vindicated his ministry from, from raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. Now, before we say anything more about Peter's point that Jesus is the Messiah, we need to acknowledge at a very basic level that Peter is demonstrating for us here the importance of God's word in revealing God to us. So often the dominant focus of Pentecost is the miracle of speaking in tongues. But when we look at Pentecost as a whole, notice how quickly the narrative moves from this sign of speaking in tongues to the scriptures. It isn't that speaking in tongues is unimportant. It was a sign that Jesus is alive and has ascended and is pouring out his Holy Spirit, but the Spirit works primarily through God's Word proclaimed. And what this means for us is that we need to know Scripture deeply and intimately. 
not only for the sake of evangelism, to be able to proclaim God's word for the purpose of revealing God in his salvific work to others and calling them to put their trust in Jesus Christ, but we need to know God's word for our own sake. It is by way of God's word that we are being saved. If we want the spirit to be at work mightily in our lives, then we need to be in God's word since this is a mean by which the spirit works. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And certainly, the people there in Jerusalem that day were cut to the heart by God's word in the power of the spirit, as we will discuss in just a moment. So God's word needs to be read. It needs to be spoken. It needs to be preached. It needs to be known by us. Far from this Pentecost event encouraging people to spend their time consumed with acquiring the gifts of the Spirit, it is encouraging the people of God to spend their time consumed with acquiring knowledge of God through His Word. But we also shouldn't miss here how Peter quickly moves from discussing the Holy Spirit to giving witness to the person of Jesus Christ. One would think on this day that the Holy Spirit had been poured out, that the apostles would have focused almost entirely on the Holy Spirit's work and developed a theology of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the triune God. But they don't. After Peter responds to the crowd's question with the Joel passage, his entire remaining sermon is focused on the work of Jesus Christ. And this gets us to our third point. The third point is this. This sermon preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sermon preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what is central here. The entire focus is on Jesus Christ, on his life with its mighty works and wonders and signs. On his death by the crucifixion at the hands of the Romans to whom he had been turned over by the Jews. On his resurrection, which was witnessed by the apostles. And on his ascension to the right hand of God from whence he pours out his spirit that the people that day could see evidence of through the apostles. In just a few verses, Peter establishes Jesus as both Lord and Christ, as both God Almighty and the Anointed One who had come to provide forgiveness of sins. And Peter calls those in the crowd to place their faith in Jesus in his all-sufficient sacrifice for their sins and to submit their lives to his rule. It's going to be a message that we see repeated again and again throughout Acts, not just by Peter, but by the other apostles. And it seems so basic, right? Do we even need to point out that Peter is preaching the gospel? Of course he is preaching the gospel. What else would he be doing? But I point it out because for some reason, it's a message that's been overlooked today. Even as the gospel was central to the apostles' message, how often do we as Christians in America want to tell people about what Jesus said, what he instructed, 
without ever telling them of his death and resurrection. Without telling them that Jesus died for our sins and rose that we might have newness of life. And perhaps this is because there can be an assumption that people know what the gospel proclaims. Although we never see such an assumption in Acts. And when we skip over the gospel without a clear presentation, what we are doing is expecting unbelievers, those who are dead in their sins, to somehow obey what Jesus has said without ever being called to place faith in him first. So this sermon calls us to not get ahead of ourselves, to not get the cart before the horse. The salvific work of God in Jesus Christ must be proclaimed and believed first and foremost. People must be called to look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose for us and who reigns in power for us at God's right hand until the day he comes to judge the living and the dead. And after an opportunity to examine Jesus as Savior and Lord, there must be a call to place faith in his all-sufficient work. If we want to speak of God's grace, this is where the grace of God is found. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ where our sins are not just overlooked, but are condemned and dealt with. And if we want to speak of the righteous life that Christ calls us to, then we must first look at Christ who is not only our example, but whose life reveals to us our own imperfection and weakness and need for a Savior. And Peter demonstrates for us a wonderful, straightforward gospel presentation in this Pentecost sermon. We too need to be able to present the gospel clearly and concisely in our evangelism. But we should not fail to see that a part of the proclamation of the gospel is a clear condemnation of sin. And this leads us to our fourth and final point. So the fourth point is this. This sermon is fearless. This sermon is fearless. It's perhaps easy to look at this sermon isolated from the context in which it was preached. But we need to be mindful here that all of this is happening in the same city that Jesus was arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified just a few weeks earlier. And certainly there were some in the crowd that day, perhaps many who were antagonistic to the apostles' message. The fact that there were some who were scoffing at them as drunkards tells us as much. And it isn't just that Peter is preaching to a crowd, some of whom could have very well been among the crowd crying for Jesus to be crucified. But Peter also isn't afraid to call them to account for this sin. Look at the boldness of Peter's words here in verses 22 through 24. As we've already heard, he establishes that Jesus did many signs and wonders which were witnessed by people in this crowd. And yet, Peter tells them, Jesus was the one you killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men, referring to the Gentiles. Then again, in verse 36, after establishing how these two passages in the Psalms point to Jesus as Messiah, as the one whom death could not hold and the one who has ascended into heaven, Peter says this, 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter doesn't let him off the hook. They were responsible for handing Jesus over to be crucified by the Romans. His blood was on their hands as much as it was the Romans, even as all of this happened according to God's plan. And when we think about what is happening here, it would seem that Peter is poking a bear. Not once, multiple times. It doesn't seem wise at all by worldly standards. This isn't handled in a politically correct way. What he is saying here isn't diplomatic in the least. But, and here's what we need to understand, Peter and all of the apostles rest on God's sovereignty. They know that Jesus is reigning as Lord and will return again to put all of his enemies under his feet. And they know that the Spirit of God is at work and that God's word has power. And they know that they have been called to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So there is no fear in their preaching. It is done with boldness. And we also need to understand that calling for repentance and faith is crucial as a proper response to the gospel message. Peter is not afraid to declare to this crowd that their sins, their sins in order to bring about a conviction of sin. If there is no conviction of sin, there can be no repentance. It is indeed a conviction of sin that leads the crowd to cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And what is Peter's reply? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is available to all who call on the name of Jesus Christ, even those responsible for his death. This is the greatness of God's grace here freely offered. Further, If there is no conviction of sin, then what, after all, would the crowd be calling on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved from? Why would they need to place faith in the work of Jesus Christ if there is no sin to be forgiven? And so the fearlessness of the apostles' message should be an encouragement to us and a challenge for us. We, too, must be fearless when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, which includes addressing sin. A gospel proclamation is not complete if personal sin is not addressed. But there are two problems that we face in our culture. First, we live in a society that bows easily to fear. Our nation was not always this way, but we now live in a cancel culture where everything that can be deemed offensive to anyone is eliminated and in which people are constantly pressured to apologize for living and speaking according to their convictions. The reality is that there are very real consequences for speaking truth in this cultural context. But when did we decide that there were times and places in which God's truth was not proper to share? Is there a context in which God's word is not appropriate and should be withheld? 
If we are not willing to stand up for the gospel, who will? I recently ran across this line in a book I've been reading. The only precondition for the death of the gospel is silence. Therefore, we mustn't be afraid to speak truth into our context, even if we are misunderstood, called names, and slandered as the apostles were on the day of Pentecost, or worse. The reality is that the spirit which God gives to his people on the day of Pentecost is not a spirit of timidity. Paul tells Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. We would do well to remember this truth. Second, we need to recognize that we live in a society dominated by relativism. This means that people do as they see fit in their own eyes. There is no universally recognized law, standards, values, expectations, or commandments. And people love this because it sounds like grace and freedom, right? I can be and do whatever I want, and everyone exists just to affirm me in whatever I want to be or do. The obvious problem with this is that there still remains real offenses, transgressions, violations, faults, sin. Except there can be no forgiveness because there is not a real acknowledgement in turning away from the problem. So true grace and forgiveness are completely undermined and destroyed in this sort of context. It is imperative then that we affirm that there is a God who is holy and that because there is a God who has revealed his standards to us that we are at odds with him in living against his will and in violation of his word if we are not living in conformity to his law. So even as people are pandering after their felt needs, we need to declare that their real need is reconciliation with God. That they do not have God's affirmation, nor should they have their own until they are set at peace with God. But thanks be to God. Peter tells us that God has made a way where there was no way. That there is forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. What must we do? Repent. Turn away from our sin. Place faith in Jesus Christ. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So dearly beloved in your evangelism, Be immensely practical. Be deeply scriptural. Preach the gospel. And do it fearlessly. And the Spirit will use us as God's instruments for the expanse of his kingdom everywhere we go. And to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit afresh on us today. Stir within us. Set our hearts ablaze for Jesus Christ and for your kingdom. Empower us to do your work. And send us forth in boldness to proclaim the gospel that others may hear and know of your great love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I invite you to now stand and affirm what you believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, 
In whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father. 